Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series in the Sermon on the Mount called The Politics of Jesus, where we're learning how to live the upside-down way of Jesus' kingdom. Thanks for joining us. The word politics means the activities associated with the governance of a country or kingdom. In other words, it simply means the way people living in groups make decisions and live those decisions out as a community. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is a picture of the kingdom of God, an invitation to life in community, which is often upside down to the kingdom of this world. Peggy and I first moved here to Springfield. We bought this really small little house that had a really small little backyard. And eventually we got to the point where we wanted to kind of fix up the backyard. But the problem was there was this tree growing in this backyard. And I really didn't want to go through all the effort of having to cut it down. But finally, one day I got motivated enough to do it. And I got my axe. I got all my tools. I got outside and I was ready to cut this tree down, and I took my axe, and I took one swing at it, and it broke into a thousand little bits of pieces. Now, I'd love to believe that's because of how strong I am, but the reality is, while that tree looked alive on the outside, it was dead on the inside. And that tree is an illustration of the passage we're going to be looking at together as we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount called The Politics of Jesus. If you're following on your notes with me this morning, in this series, we're learning how to live the upside-down way of Jesus' kingdom. Now, if you haven't been with us so far in this series, we've learned that as a king, Jesus has come to establish his kingdom, which as we've been talking about is different than any other nation, any other kingdom in this world. And we saw in the first week that the most important thing for citizens in his kingdom is to develop the right kind of heart attitudes or the right kind of postures. We call those the Beatitudes. His kingdom is not a kingdom that uses force or power from the outside in. It's a power that starts from the inside out. And then last week, Pastor Jeff showed us that as that kingdom begins to develop in our inward lives, we can become salt and light to the world around us. Now today, we're heading into this sort of three-week section on the Sermon on the Mount that talks about life in the kingdom. How exactly does Jesus want his people to live? How can we be salt and light? And once again, we're going to discover that his ways are upside down to the world around us. So let me invite you to, if you haven't already, to take your Bible, take your device, turn it to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Now we're going to really do two things today. In verses 17 through 20, Jesus is going to talk about the law and what the law means for us today. And then he's really, through the rest of chapter 5, going to start applying the law to citizens in his kingdom. So first, let me just do a quick little history lesson since we're talking about the law. You remember, in the beginning, God created the world and it was good. It was the perfect fellowship that he wanted with us as human beings. Unfortunately, that broke down through sin, what we call the fall. Now, God could have given up on us, but instead, he chose a man by the name of Abram to start over. And he told Abram, he made him this promise that I'm going to make you a great blessing. I'm going to turn you into a nation and that nation is going to be a blessing to other nations. As we walk through the book of Genesis, we see this nation starting to grow until at the end of Genesis, the beginning of Exodus, we see this nation called Israel is in slavery to Egypt. 
God hears their cries and he calls them free. He redeems them is what we would say. And he begins to bring them to the promised land that he had given to Abraham. And he stops in the middle of this journey on a mountain and he gives them the law. Most famously, we know the law as the Ten Commandments. Now, here's why I'm doing this. If you're following on your notes, the purpose or the original intent of the law created a way to relate with God and others rightly. This is why God gave the law. It was a way for us to relate to God and relate to each other rightly. In fact, the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments have everything to do with our vertical relationship with God. The next six have everything to do with how we're to relate to one another. But that wasn't the only purpose of the law. If you're following again, it also revealed sin and pointed to our need for a Savior. Let me just break that down. It revealed sin Honestly, without the law, we wouldn't know what sin is. I always think of it kind of like one of those blue lights that if you turn off the lights in your room and you use that blue light, you get to see all the disgusting stains and the dirt and all the things that are present there in that room. And that's kind of what sin, or what, yeah, what, what the law does. It reveals that kind of sin in our lives. And when we see it, we recognize no matter how hard I might try to clean it, I can't. I need a savior. I mean, think about the Israelites going to the tabernacle or the temple day after day, needing to offer these sacrifices to kind of do away with the blue light mess in their lives. In Galatians chapter three, verse 24, Paul would say this. So the law was our guardian until Christ came so that we may be justified by faith. In other words, the law was put in a temporary place to allow us to see our sin and see our need for a savior. It was never meant to actually save us. Sadly, however, as we move out through church history, as time passed, the law got changed into something that it was never meant to be. Once again, if you're following, the law became an external list of rules to gain righteousness. This is called religion. The law became a religion, right? Religion just means if I do enough good things, if I try to clean up all those stains in my life, I will please God and I'll have a right relationship with God. Now, in Jesus' day, the most outwardly religious people were a group known as the Pharisees and the scribes. And for them, the law had really been reduced down to a list of rules, a list of traditions that if they followed, it would earn them God's favor. Now, the problem with their view was while they knew the letter of the law, they missed the whole point of the law. They didn't know the God of the law. In fact, they didn't even recognize Jesus, God in the flesh, when he came to earth. Like my tree in the backyard, they looked good on the outside, but they were dead on the inside. For them, the law was only an external list of rules, and their standing with God was based on whether or not they followed those rules or not. And so Jesus comes, and he's constantly challenging them and their understanding of the law. You guys have forgotten the purpose of the law. For example, in Matthew 15, 8, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah when he says this about the Pharisees and the scribes. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You've substituted religion in place of a real relationship with God. 
But they got angry at Jesus for constantly talking about the law this way. They accused him of wanting to get rid of the law completely. And so we come to this section in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus addresses this with them. Will you read verse 17 out loud on your notes with me there? It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'll continue. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now notice this verse. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus says two very important things here. First, if you're following, Jesus is not doing away with the law, but fulfilling it. Fulfill is a great word. It means to make full, to meet the requirements of, to accomplish And this definition helps us understand what Jesus means here when he says, I've come to accomplish, to fulfill the law. How does Jesus accomplish the law? First, I'm going to remind you why I spent some time in the beginning to talk about the law. The law was always meant to remind us of our sin and our need for a Savior. Well, that was Jesus' entire mission. Friends, we call this the gospel, right? The good news of Jesus, if you're following, that Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice for our sin. He is our Savior. Praise God, we don't have to offer sacrifices for our sin anymore. Good news of great joy. He has fulfilled the law. Jesus isn't attacking the law here. We'll just see that in a minute. He's attacking the religious leaders' interpretation and how they were teaching people that the law was about external rule following. Jesus says, no, following rules cannot save you. Only I can save you. Now, the truth is, we kind of like religion. I kind of like religion because it's so much easier for me to know where I'm standing because I can compare myself to others. I mean, I'm certainly better than you, And I'm certainly better than you, uh, so that must be putting me above others in God's eyes. That is what the Pharisees and the scribes did. However, perhaps you've learned by now in your life that trying to follow the law only leads to ruin and pride and despair. Did you know that two of the greatest leaders in the history of the church, Martin Luther and John Wesley, both fell into this kind of despair. They read the Bible and they tried as hard as they could to be righteous according to the law. And finally, one day, both of them came to the end of themselves, like we're told in the very first beatitude. They became poor in spirit and it changed everything for them. They lived a powerful Christian life. And this is ultimately what verse 20 means, a verse that has caused so much despair among Jesus' followers. But I'm telling you, these are some of the kindest words Jesus could say to us. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, how is it possible for our righteousness to surpass the Pharisees? It's not. 
In the most kind words, Jesus is explaining to you and me the impossibility of salvation apart from his righteousness. Paul talks about this in truly some of the most amazing verses in the entire Bible. If you struggle with identity, if you struggle with receiving God's grace, I encourage you, memorize these verses. Romans 8, 1 through 4 proclaim, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Did you catch that? Theologians call this the great exchange. You might want to write that down and remember. Jesus exchanged my sin for his righteousness. He offered the once and for all sacrifice for my sin. And then he gives us his Holy Spirit of righteousness who now lives in us and leads us. We have been made righteous. He exchanged my filthy rags, as Isaiah says, for gold. We have become brand new people in Jesus. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see our righteousness. He sees Jesus' righteousness. And that is how you fulfill verse 20. Now listen, for the next three weeks, I just need you to remember, because these are some of the most challenging words in all of the Sermon on the Mount, these verses right here. Righteousness is not something we're doing for Jesus. Righteousness is something we allow Jesus to do through us, through the Holy Spirit who now lives in us. Or if you're following on your notes, righteousness isn't external obedience. It's inward transformation. And it's only something you can do when you give your heart fully to him. But that's not all Jesus means here when he says he came to fulfill the law. Once more, if you're following, he also restored the purpose of the law to its original intent. If the Pharisees had reduced the law to external rule following, sometimes that came at the expense of others. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to turn that upside down. I'm going to remind you what the law was always meant to show you. It was meant to show you how to relate to God and how to relate to others. It's about the heart. It's not about legalistic, nitpicking, rule-keeping it's about a relationship. In fact, later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus was asked, well, what would you say is the most important thing about the law? And these familiar words are probably familiar with you. Here was Jesus' response in Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law. And the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus brings the law back to the heart. Or if you're following, here's what we're heading into. We now fulfill the law when we love God and love others. And so with all that in mind, Jesus starts talking about the kind of righteousness he's looking for in his kingdom. And I'm going to warn you, he raises the bar of the law beyond external rule following in the next passages to what's really going on in our heart. 
As I said, these are gonna be some of the most challenging verses in the Sermon on the Mount, but please, as we head into these next three weeks, always remember verses 17 through 20. Jesus is calling us to a new life in his kingdom, and that new life starts right here in our heart. So let's look at verse 21. We're gonna look at the first example he gives of how we fulfill the law in our hearts. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Jesus is quoting the sixth commandment right here. And again, if you're standing there, even for us today, maybe we sit here and go, check, at least I got one of the commandments. At least I fulfilled this one. I haven't murdered anybody yet. Yet. I haven't killed anybody. Seems like an easy one, case closed. But remember, Jesus is elevating the heart of the law here. So let's read what he says in the first part of verse 22 on your notes together. He says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. I'll continue. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying, if you're following, that anger is the inward expression of murder. Again, Pharisees, scribes, had reduced the intent of this commandment merely to a question of outward actions. I've never murdered anybody. I'm good. Jesus says, though, we fulfill this commandment when it actually goes into our heart. It's not just about externally avoiding murder. It's about what's going on in your heart with others. And anger is a dangerous thing to carry around in your heart. Now, one thing we need to be clear on is what Jesus is not talking about here when he's talking about anger. In fact, if you remember, Jesus became angry at times, didn't he? He became angry at those who were robbing people in the temple. He clears out the temple. He became angry when the Pharisees and scribes would get mad at him for healing people on the Sabbath day. But the key to that is Jesus' anger was an righteous indignation towards sin and the effect of sin. Jesus, if you believe in him, was God in the flesh, which means he's completely holy. And so when he encountered the effects of sin on somebody, he became righteously angry. I'm sure you have experiences like this too. As a Christ follower, I gotta tell you, whenever I see in public a child being mistreated or being abused even by their parents or somebody else, I am righteously angry and that is right. That is sharing the heart of God. But in these verses, Jesus is not speaking about righteous anger. His words leave no doubt about what he means. This isn't pounding your steering wheel in traffic. This isn't yelling at Mitch Trubitsky for throwing another interception. He's talking about this deep-seated, unresolved, ongoing anger we carry towards someone. Or if you're following, this is an ongoing anger that doesn't want reconciliation. And Jesus talks about it. If we carry this anger, it can start to make its way out into the words that we speak. To call someone the Aramaic word raka. You want to just say that? Isn't that a great Hebrew word? Ready? Raka. It's literally to call somebody empty-headed, an idiot. It's demoting them to a level of nobody. The term fool Jesus uses here is from the Greek translation of the word moros. What English word do you think we get from moros? Yeah, moron. 
But here's the thing. Calling somebody a fool in the first century was not making a statement about their IQ like it means for us today. It was a statement of their worth. It meant questioning whether that person even belonged among the living. You could translate it as, I wish you were dead. Why is that so serious for Jesus? Because the words we speak are the direct result of what's happening in our heart. And speaking words like that reveals a very dangerous heart condition that is not consistent with a person who has the Holy Spirit residing in their heart. We looked at this verse this week in the Bible study, if you're joining us in that, but John would write it in 1 John 3.15 this way, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. You can't share your heart with the Holy Spirit and holding on to this hatred. They don't belong together. If you hate people with an ongoing hate and anger, then you're simply not sharing God's heart. Listen, I'm sure you've had some very hurtful and hard things said to you. I have as well. But I have discovered in my own life that as a follower of Jesus, I have to get rid of it. I have to get rid of it. I confess, this is a really hard one for me. I'm admitting it. I'm a, I'm a pretty much a world-class grudge holder. But it doesn't belong there. And the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts me of it until I deal with it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Just that nagging conviction that you've got to make that right. Now, believe me, just like any married couple, Peggy and I have our fights. In fact, we had a doozy a couple weeks ago. But I find that if I don't deal with my part of it, it just starts to eat away at me in our marriage. You know what that is? That's nothing other than the gift of the Holy Spirit. Convicting me. Make this right. Jesus wants us to deal with our anger. And I love that in the rest of this text, he tells us even more why this is so important and how we can do it. So first, the why. Look at verses 23 and 24 with me. It says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Why is it so important to deal with our anger? In this example, Jesus tells us, again, if you're on your notes, anger hurts our relationships with others and our fellowship with God. It breaks the heart of the law to love God and love one another. I don't think we really get the weight of these words of what Jesus is saying here. So let me just give you a little background on the New Testament because it's impossible for us to think about the tremendous ask Jesus is making here. The Jewish people were required to bring a sacrifice to Jerusalem every year on what was known as the Day of Atonement. Most people would bring a lamb. You can read in Luke chapter two that Jesus' own family, they did this. Now listen, they didn't make this trip in a car. There weren't planes. There weren't highways. There weren't gas stations where you could get Doritos and Coke. They had to walk. And sometimes that meant walking two days, three days, four days, five days, because every Jew, no matter how far away you lived, had to come to Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement. Finally, you'd get to Jerusalem and you'd go to the temple. How many people do you think on the Day of Atonement were at the temple? How long do you think the lines were? Lines and lines of people, like worse than Disney World. 
which is hard to imagine. And they would stand in line with their sacrifice. Most people would bring a small, spotless lamb. There they would be hour after hour waiting for their turn to offer the sacrifice. Finally, they would get there and one of the priests would say, okay, it's time for you to confess your sins and you would lay your hands upon that, line, upon that lamb. And right there, right in front of you, that priest would take his knife and he would slit the throat of the land, allowing the blood to run out and declare that your sins had been forgiven. That lamb has taken your punishment for your sin. Little side note here, how dramatic, if that's what they were used to, the words of John the Baptist the first time he saw Jesus. Behold, the lamb of God, who what? takes away the sin of the world. There's the one that's going to fulfill the law. Back to our passage. Do you understand what Jesus is saying now? If after hours and hours of waiting in front of that line, your turn has finally come, and all of a sudden you're convicted and go, oh, I really have an anger issue with this person. What does Jesus say? Then don't offer your sacrifice. God, can I just offer the sacrifice first? I mean, we've been waiting here for 18 hours. Then I'll go deal with that. No, it'll mean nothing to me. Can I just flip the order? I promise right after this, I'll do. No, leave and go make it right with that person. That has some massive implications for us. A modern example might be if you're here worshiping in church right now, in the middle of this worship, and you're holding on to bitterness and anger towards someone, get up and go make it right. I'll wait. Psalm 66, 18 says similar words here. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Friends, anger will keep us, like ongoing anger, bitterness is gonna keep us from a relationship with God. And if that's not enough reason for us to want to deal with it, I'll give you two more reasons. The Bible tells us anger is such a serious issue that needs to be resolved. We're told in Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that anger gives Satan a foothold in our lives. When we hold on to bitterness and anger, we're basically opening the door to our hearts saying, come on in, Satan, ruin my relationships ruin my life while you're there. The second warning the Bible gives is that it causes a root of bitterness to grow in our hearts. That's from Hebrews 12. This past Sunday, on Super Bowl Sunday actually, I was walking down our hallway and I got a bunch of splinters in the bottom of my foot. It hurt. And I was working really hard for that whole day trying to get those splinters out. I thought I had got them all out, but man, there was still something bothering me. I could barely walk. So I had to finally go to the doctor and they had to pull out these deep splinters that had gotten into my heel. That's what anger can do. It can become like this root of bitterness. And if we don't get it out, it's just gonna grow worse. It's just gonna get infected. Our hearts are gonna get infected. So deal with it. Don't allow anger to grow in your life. Now, the question that remains is, how do we deal with it? How do we resolve our anger? How do I reconcile with those who have done me wrong or even those I've done wrong to? Now, I'm gonna bet if you're anything like me, the truth is this wasn't modeled the best in your family growing up. 
And so what happens is we carry, however it was modeled from our parents into our marriages, and then our kids carry that into their marriages. But Jesus says, I want to offer you a new way. It's called reconciliation. And he talks about it in the last two verses of this text. Let's look at them. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, this is a real-life example of the first century. A plaintiff could be bring an accused person to the court to face the judge, and the two of them, if they were smart, would try to settle the matters on the way to the court. But once the court made its decision, the verdict was final. The chance for resolution was lost. Now, you may be thinking, thankfully, we don't go to jail because of anger or bitterness or conflict, and I would just suggest to you, are you sure about that? Anger is like a prison over our hearts. Beth Moore gives the best example I've heard of this. I heard this like 15 years ago and it's stuck with me ever since. Think about carrying a bus as your backpack. And every time you're angry with someone, you just throw them in the bus, throw them in the bus, throw them in the bus till eventually you've created a prison over your back, over your life. Now the truth is we actually think anger gives us power. Isn't that right? If I'm angry towards someone, I have power over that person. But what Jesus suggests here is actually your anger has power over you. And if you don't deal with it, it's just going to weigh you down more and more and more. I know I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. We will always say this. Listen, offering forgiveness or reconciliation with someone never means you're justifying their actions. Nor does it mean you don't have to have clear boundaries set up with them. But Jesus is clear here, unless we break free from the power of anger, we will never truly be free. It's the biggest insight I had this week studying this and doing the Bible study. These words are not more rules from Jesus. These words are all about his desire for us to be free from the prison of bitterness that often holds us under control. Frederick Beekner, one of my favorite all-time authors, once said this. I have this on the screen if you want to follow. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to savor to the last toothsome morsel of both the pain you have been given and the pain you are giving back, in many ways is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Holding on to the anger just eats away at us. So how do we get rid of it? How do we deal with it? Well, I love how practical Jesus' words here. Don't you love how practical the word of God is? Number one, first step, he says, admit and confront our anger with God's help. You gotta get to the point. You may think it's gone. It's probably not gone. So admit your anger. Confront it. Confess it. Anger doesn't go away unless we choose to deal with it. And if we don't deal with it, it's going to have lasting effects. So number one, just admit it. Come to God in prayer. Admit and confess your anger. Now, I just want to say that might be the only step some of us need to take here. 
Because quite honestly, sometimes anger is just a personal thing that we've been holding onto. In fact, if you were actually to go to the person and tell them you're angry with them, they'd be like, what? I thought that was like 30 years ago. You told me you forget. Sometimes it just comes back. And so we admit it, we confess it, we ask for God's help to release it. Number two, if it is affecting a relationship, however, this is the hardest step right here. Where the rubber meets the road, I must be willing to take the initiative. Again, not me, you. You must be willing to take the initiative. If you want reconciliation, if you want to get rid of anger, you got to make the first move. And you know what that means? The H word. You got to humble yourself. Let's be honest. When you're in the middle of an argument, the last thing you want to do is humble yourself. You want the other person to humble themselves. But Jesus' wisdom is here. Humble yourself. Make this right. That leads to the third step of dealing with anger. If you're following on your notes, you see it right in this passage. Do it immediately. First, confront your anger. Second, humble yourself. And then in verse 25, you see what Jesus says? Settle matters quickly. Do it on the way. On the way where? Anywhere. Well, it's funny you say that because on my way to the kitchen this morning, I ran into my teenager and we haven't had a very good morning since. So when should you deal with that? Immediately. Why? Because it's only going to get worse. It's only going to grow into something worse. Friends, as we close this morning, I hope you're not hearing this as a threat from Jesus, but as an invitation to a better life in his kingdom. In fact, let me ask you this question if you're on your notes, and I want you to be truthful and honest before God right now. Do I believe Jesus is offering the key to wholeness and freedom? This is a gift that he wants us to receive to experience freedom. If you do believe that, if you've really come to the place where you recognize the busload that's hanging over your life right now, will you release your anger? Is there a relationship or relationships you have ongoing anger over that you just need to let go? Maybe just in your own life, maybe in your own heart, or maybe that's going to require you to actually facing that person. Perhaps as we turn to a time of prayer, you could ask God something like this, Lord, who do I have unresolved anger with? And if you already know that, Lord, I have unresolved anger with blank. And I need your help. I need your help to pursue reconciliation. Can you imagine the freedom you might have this morning? This morning, if you were willing to pray that prayer and to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation, it would turn your life upside down or maybe better yet, it would turn your life right side up, which is what life in the kingdom is all about. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we look at all of this with the backdrop that we have fallen short, that our lives have been stained by sin and yet you did not stop, let that stop you from pursuing us. You offer us the gift of salvation where you exchange our unrighteousness with your righteousness. 
pray for the person who's heard this message this morning, who's feeling condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is there conviction? Yes. And that is a gift you give us so that we can make our hearts clean. So we just spend some time right now acknowledging how easy it is to let anger get a grip in our lives. We admit and confess. We bring faces, names before you. Give us the power and strength we need to forgive. Release us. Spirit of God, I pray right now for my brothers and sisters in this room or watching online that even right now, they would be experiencing freedom and wholeness. They could sense it in their bodies, sense it in their hearts that something is being released. We want to follow your example, Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your forgiveness, the once and for all forgiveness we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.